Hi and good morning to PwC's CEO Viewpoints podcast series, where we discuss key themes and Canadian insights from the 26th Annual Global CEO Survey. My name is James McLean. I'm the National Utilities Leader for PwC Canada, and I'll be your host for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. This year, our CEO survey focuses on critical questions facing leaders today. How to balance reinventing the business to succeed in a changing world with the need to manage short-term pressures and challenges. So let's dive deeper into this topic with our guest speaker today. I am thrilled to have John Cleland, CEO of Australia's Essential Energy, here joining us in Calgary, all the way from the other side of the globe. John is here to share his thoughts of leading and accelerating one of the most innovative and progressive energy transition journeys taking place anywhere in the world. Balancing and extending customer and stakeholder expectations, commitment to sustainable and safe energy and his outlook on where the sector is and where it will be headed. Welcome, John. It's great to have you here with us today. Hi, James. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Let's dive straight into origin stories. I know Australia has a whole history of origin stories, but tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, a bit of background on the essential energy business and your path to becoming the CEO there. My path to CEO was initially university. I studied economics and finance. I spent some time in chartered accounting with one of the big four chartered accounting firms. I spent some time in banking and finance and joined a diversified Australian listed industrial company and spent 11 years in ostensibly commercial and financial roles, initially sort of mergers and acquisitions, and then a series of postings in different subsidiary companies in commercial and financial roles. And that ultimately resulted in a CFO role in the vertically integrated rail business in Western Australia, which had been recently privatised. And when that business was sold, I then went with that business and became CEO of the rail infrastructure business. That for me began a journey of really specialisation in infrastructure and regulated utilities across rail, gas distribution, gas transmission, ports, some time in mining more recently over the last seven years, electricity distribution. There's so many parallels between Australia and Canada, maybe apart from the the weather conditions, but certainly culturally, and maybe just paint the picture for kind of scale, customers, employees, what does that business look like? So Essential Energy is a quite unique and entirely remarkable business and network in that it covers the entire state of New South Wales in terms of the rural, remote and regional. So it covers 95% of New South Wales landmass. We've got 880,000 connected customers. But the network comprises or covers 737,000 square kilometres, has 190,000 kilometres of overhead power lines and roughly 1.4 million power poles. And it geographically and climatically covers almost every conceivable situation from alpine to desert, rainforest, and everything in between. And so that it presents a unique range of challenges from a management and an operational perspective and a unique set of opportunities, particularly 
in the context of the energy transition and the emergence of customer energy resources. If you looked at the landscape of what the context of the central energy business looked like, there was prevailing sentiment in the industry that poles and, and wires businesses were in some sort of death spiral. How on earth can you make this a profitable business? Many people that have been in a private sector business would run a million miles away from that sort of challenge. What was it that enticed you into this role? And tell us a bit more about what that story has looked like. There'd been a period of quite intense criticism of essential energy and other distribution networks in New South Wales in particular, off the back of two regulatory cycles that had seen significant investment back into the network. And so there was criticism of gold plating or the inference of gold plating. And there was criticism of the extent to which distribution charges had risen over that period. As you indicated, there was the inference and prevailing narrative that there was a death spiral being faced by distribution networks. And that was really off the back of the assumption that the high proportion of customers would go to effectively standalone. So their own rooftop solar, storage, energy management, and effectively disconnect from the network. And that, of course, would leave the fixed costs of the network falling on an ever declining number of customers, hence the death spiral. It had seen its retail business sold off and effectively it felt that the business had become disconnected from from customers. That was a unique set of challenges for the business to work through culturally and and a very significant adjustment. The energy sector in Australia had been, and still largely is to some extent, dominated by a one-way flow of electrons from centrally located fossil generation through the transmission network, through the distribution network and to the the customer as the endpoint. And that in 2016 was already changing with the penetration of rooftop solar and the development of, of larger scale renewable generation connected to the distribution network. The network was already transitioning to becoming a platform upon which customers could generate, store, trade, consume, optimise their consumption of electrons and a a very different narrative, giving rise to a different set of challenges and a different set of required skill sets, experience and expertise within the business. John, you paint a great picture there of what that opportunity looked like. How was that view of what the potential for the business could look like versus the adversities that you felt? When I arrived in the business, there was that view probably wasn't widely held. The focus on cost-cutting was all-pervasive and that there had been a necessary process and period of cost reduction in the business and across the then three government-owned networks in New South Wales. What I needed to do and what needed to happen in the business was a pivot, if you like, to a much more positive and forward-looking narrative around distribution networks being the platform upon so much of what is positive about this transition can actually happen. There was also the important narrative that electricity distribution networks are an essential enabler of economic activity and life. They fulfil a a truly critical role in all communities. That would probably been lost a little bit through the period of cost reduction and, as I say, the focus on, on costs. So given where you came in and that prevailing conditions, where did you start? How did you approach this kind of 
day one through the first 100 plus days of the journey? Where did that start? And maybe kind of talk us through some of those critical steps that you've been through since then. Sure, it was a, a not insignificant challenge. I started the journey by spending a lot of time with employees and a lot of time in the field. And so I've traveled extensively and spent a lot of time on my feet in front of frontline employees, the wonderful group of employees who undertake the really critical role. One of the outstanding successes of Essential Energy and its very fine workforce has been the development of digital tools. The success of that has been really based upon outstanding, talented individuals in the business identifying problems and working with the technology group to effectively develop digital solutions. We were one of the first networks in Australia and possibly globally to do an en masse rollout of iPhones and iPads. And that was, that was to all employees. So in 2016, that felt like quite a brave decision. And what that did was it allowed all of our employees to develop skills around the, the use of those devices. And remarkably, we were able to self or internally generate digital solutions to problems. Two specific examples. And the first and most significant was the development of our so-called field portal, which in essence is all of our network information overlaid on Google Maps. That was done internally. It was field-based employees who worked out that they could actually achieve this outcome has given rise to a really phenomenal tool, which means that our crews in the field are operating now almost exclusively from iPhones and iPads rather than carrying lots of paper. The other was the development of our eHIRAC, which is hazard assessment or or pre-start form, which was entirely paper-based and needing to cover a raft of tasks. So the eHIRAC has allowed crews to effectively do their complete pre-start and risk assessment electronically and absolutely tailor it to the the unique nature of the task they're undertaking. That has had the benefit of creating much richer and more targeted conversations around the risks unique to each task, but it's also allowed us to capture a whole lot of data that was not previously available or was was captured in paper form. It strikes me like although those are digital changes, the implication feels like there may have been an even bigger cultural change that occurred as a result of doing those and other things that you've done. Maybe tell us a bit about that. What were the cultural implications of those changes as well? And like all change, there was initially some level of resistance. At the outset, it was quite, for some, it was quite intimidating. That's why these changes need to be undertaken on on a sort of a a a relatively gradual basis to allow everyone the time to develop the skills and 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 come with it the other key element to this from a cultural and a skills perspective is hiring people into the business with new skill sets and the sort of prime example of that is data science and data analytics and once again essential energy was 
probably ahead of several other businesses globally in terms of identifying the need for those those skills and bringing in some extraordinarily talented individuals who who came from a deep data science background and were able to bring really unique and powerful insights to the business and able to interrogate volumes of data that was were previously sort of Not considered inaccessible, yeah. if yeah. you like. The interaction between the data scientists and data analysts who joined the business and people already within the business who had a had the mindset and the sort of the inclination to test the boundaries of what was possible with digital tools has given rise to some some really powerful outcomes. And all employees have been able to see the benefit of that. And that culturally is where the shift has really occurred. You know, it sounds like you stole a a march on the rest of the industry because you started this back in 2016, 2017. And the the talent pool for those resources is is much harder these days to to access because these are very hot, hot commodities. Be great to hear kind of how you've continued to add to those capabilities and skills. And maybe like where have those come from? Have these been people from you know, elsewhere within the utility sector, have you had to be creative about finding other talent pools that and access other talent pools that wouldn't otherwise have been recognized? Well, all, all of the above. So we've we've recruited from within the within the sector. Importantly, we've recruited from outside the sector. And that's been you know, a powerful enabler, if you like, bringing in different skill sets and different mindsets. I think the most important element of this is the number of people who were existing employees of the business who have effectively developed new skill sets and moved into, into new career paths as a consequence of this change. And that's, that's probably been singularly the most powerful yeah. enabler I think everyone can see that there is an existing and increasing skills shortage within the both the technology and particularly in the energy sector. Yeah. And so for essential energy and other other industry participants, there will be a significant challenge in years to come to attract and importantly retain those skills. And so the development of internal talent becomes even more critical and essential energy has a has a very long-standing and and extraordinarily successful apprentice program it doesn't matter how good the talent is that you bring in externally is actually unlocking the potential of your current uh, employee and talent base there's no way to buy the talent you have to build the talent yourself absolutely there's been i'm sure no doubt of stakeholder interactions both internally and externally maybe talk to us a little bit about some of those experiences, the positives and the learnings as well along the way around how those stakeholders have had to be managed, included, engaged as you've gone through the journey? Sure. The journey to the end point is, is a little uncertain at this point and, and there will inevitably be, be significant challenges along the way. And so all stakeholders in the energy sector are probably apprehensive and Sort of carefully watching what what's going on across the industry and within individual organisations, and so our our interaction with external stakeholders and our our shareholders or shareholding ministers has really been based on a consistent flow of information mm-hmm. and really really trying to consistently paint the picture 
of where the organisation is is headed. We've maintained the, the focus on operational efficiency, but but are now much more focused on developing a new range of, of products and a new way of operating to really reflect the the energy transition that's underway and the revolution that will un- will take place at the household level in terms of the proliferation of rooftop solar storage both within the home or within the network you know i think there's you know maybe a, a theme i've observed and and we've been criticized as in a, in a utilities industry we tend to go you know, very quickly to the technical it sounds like your stakeholder engagement involvement approach and strategy was more maybe in storytelling and being able to make it what the changes were and the impacts of those changes practical and, and relatable to the various different stakeholders. That's a fair, a fair synopsis. And I, I think the, the critical element of this always is to bring it back to the customer and to understand that firstly, the, the customer will have far more autonomy and say in what happens in the future than they had previously. Understanding some of the power of the consumer and the enormous benefits that will flow to customers and consumers as a consequence of this transition is critical to both how businesses operate, but also to engagement with regulators and, and market bodies and shareholders. No, that's fascinating. And yeah, making it real and the customer focus is, I think, is a great, great message for, for us all to consider. I'll switch a little bit now to some of the data points that we got from our global CEO survey. In the recent survey, 76% of global CEOs are making technology and reinvention-orientated investments in their organizations. When you think of your transformational journey, what have been some of the critical investments? You've mentioned a couple of the examples, but maybe kind of talk a bit more about some of those others, and as well as some of the surprises along the way. Sure. One very significant enhancement that I haven't mentioned is the development of a digital twin. We have partnered with an external organisation, Mira, and over a journey of some six years, we've developed developed a very robust digital twin. And that, that has allowed us to effectively take data collected ostensibly from LiDAR, place it into a digital model, and get a, a much more detailed representation and insight into our network. And that has allowed us to much more accurately model the capacity of the network, and that is having positive ramifications in terms of the potential to host renewables and generation and the potential for customers with solar panels to export larger, larger amounts of electrons from their home and, and, and better, better utilise the, the economic investment they have made in panels. We're seeing sections and parts of our network where we were able to, to effectively double the capacity. Um, and that's that's just because we're much, much better able to model the capacity of the network, model the constraints and understand where the constraints are and, and aren't, as the case may be. It's also allowed for the rebuilding of the network, particularly to the extent that it was damaged by significant fires yeah. in Australia in 2019 and 20. And so rather than, than crews going out and replicating what was there previously, planners and designers were able to to look at the situation Op- and optimize optimize the rebuild yeah. in in real time in a dynamic situation the digital twin allows us to effectively model the capacity of each span really? of, of overhead network across 
the 189,000 kilometres we have. And that previously would have required a site visit using different technologies or different skills, if you like, to, to model that capacity. That constraint really required blanket restrictions or blanket assumptions on the capacity of the network, and they've been able to be effectively challenged. Yeah, interestingly, resilience is the number one area that we're trying to focus on within the Canadian sector from a utility standpoint. And you know, being ready to not always be able to avoid a crisis, be able to respond to a crisis is, is one of the critical things that we feel is a, a core capability that any utility, successful utility is going to need, as you've described. Yeah, maybe give us a couple of top tips that you've had. And, and you know, again, as someone that's you know, spent time in Australia and loved the, loved the environment there, it's been tragic to see the, 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 the environmental impacts that you've had there recently. And so I would pay tribute to the, the amazing essential energy workforce who have collectively become really expert at responding to climate impacts and, and these, these adverse scenarios for the business. And so our ability to respond to, to fires, floods and storms is really second to none and a huge credit to the amazing, the amazing workforce within the business. And we, we have consistently been identified and called out for being first on the ground and the most deficient of all sort of utilities and emergency response organisations in, in re-establishing supply and supporting our customers through that period. And that has required the development of new processes and new, equip- new items of equipment. It's also necessitated and highlighted the benefit of empowerment at the right levels within the organisation. So ensuring that at a sort of regional and local level, there is the empowerment, the autonomy and the authority. Maybe we'll, we'll kind of move on to a topic which is around affordability and costs. And you kind of you mentioned the landscape of cost cutting that had occurred prior to your, your environment, your involvement at Essential, but the, the success you've continued to achieve in terms of dropping kind of real-term rates to, to customers, which I think is a, a great way of engaging anyone in terms of being able to have that dialogue. Um, interestingly, from the CEO survey, 52% of global CEOs have said that they have already begun cost-cutting activities as a result of some of the, the challenges happening from an, a, an economic standpoint including hiring freezes and, 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 and workforce kind of you know, caps and reductions. Talk to us a bit about like, how you're balancing the, the need to continue to be cost-effective whilst also innovating. Sure, and it's, it's important to note here the, the changing expectation of customers, expectation of customers. And that is, that is a function both of the fact that customers are increasingly availing themselves of, of rooftop solar and battery storage is sort of an emerging trend, clearly. Across the essential energy network, roughly just under 30% of our residential customers now have panels on their roofs. Okay. And we are seeing the emergence, as I say, of, of, of batteries. Electric vehicles slowly increasing in numbers in Australia. And the conversations we're having with customers and the engagement with customers throughout the preparation of our most recent regulatory proposal has really highlighted that customers are placing a much greater emphasis on reliability and resilience 
and flexibility within electricity, the provision of electricity as a service. It's also important to note that through COVID period, a high proportion of people worked and educated from home. Yeah. And so the, the level of focus on reliability and resilience is much, is much higher. What we're seeing consistently is a willingness on the part of customers to accept some level of increase in our costs to ensure that they are able to avail themselves of all the beneficial elements of the energy transition. So specifically, the ability to, to install rooftop solar and to export a meaningful amount from that storage as its electrons are generated um, to, to avail themselves of, of storage to own and effectively and economically charge electric vehicles, which yeah. is clearly a, you know, a, major, a major area of consideration for networks and electricity providers globally. That has really changed the conversation and that, that gives rise to a, to a different conversation with economic regulators yeah. as well and different, different consideration for economic regulators as they consider distribution charges going forward. So I guess a recognition that there is, you know, you can't constantly be on a downward trend on costs, you know, it, you know, particularly in the short term if you've got to make investments, but they're enabling the resilience, reliability, and that flexibility you talk about from a, a kind of consumer customer standpoint that give them options as they think about generation and storage themselves and, and how that impacts on the grid. I'm looking forward to some of our teams, our utilities doing that, having just put solar on my own house. Now to some of those somewhat cliched questions. If you look back now on the journey, what, what would you have done differently? The key point I would make here, and this is extraordinarily relevant to the, the energy transition, is that the future is, is largely unknowable. And it's very easy in a in an industry that has operated in a very similar manner for several decades to undertake this transition. And if you look back at the, the sort of the learning rate and the cost curve on, on solar, so solar panels, it's always exceeded expectations. The lesson there is to embrace the uncertainty, to accept that learning rates and cost curves move in ways that, that are very rarely correctly predicted. And particularly in Australia where the penetration of solar panels is much higher than, than other, other jurisdictions globally. And in many ways, it's, it's only just beginning. And so understanding the extent to which, and there's a very small number of our customers who have storage within their homes today and a, and a very small proportion who have electric vehicles the extent to which that will change over the next two, three, five years. Rapid fire last rounds. I'm, I'm always up for a good book recommendation or a podcast or movie, film, documentary, anything that you'd share with our listeners that's really inspired you or would be great and relevant for the, the conversation that we've had today that we could uh, take away from the, from the discussion. Sure. And if I, if I can, I'm going to reference two books Go for it. in this situation. <laughs> the first you'll be pleased to hear is a, a book published by PwC, 10 Years to Midnight by okay. Blair Shepard, really very effectively and articulately outlines some of the social and political challenges and, and macro forces that are impacting on the, on the globe. The second is The Big Switch by Sol Griffiths, an Australian 
scientist and and energy industry commentator who has been intimately involved in the Inflation Reduction Act and and a lot of the policy in the US. And the big switch is, is really around the electrification of everything and the enormity of what will happen at a household level. Two great recommendations, John. It's been a pleasure. I, I, don't know, I feel like I've gone through a, 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 an MBA class and in terms of kind of what it takes to, to take a business through the, the transition from a utility standpoint. I know we're spending some time together later today. Any kind of closing remarks from yourself? If not, it's, it's a massive thank you from me. And I'll just hand it over to you to, to close it out. My closing remark would be, as I say, the energy transition is inevitable, will ultimately be entirely positive. The journey, the journey will, will present many challenges and it will largely and predominantly be driven by, by consumers and, and customers and the focus on customers and consumers will be critical and is critical for all, all distribution networks and all industry participants. Love that closing message, John. Thank you so much. 